Grief is a wild thing. If you've ever lost anyone close to you, you know that grief can take on many different forms. Living inside you like an amorphous blob, slithering its way through your heart and mind, your muscles and bones. Years can pass, and still, there it is, coursing through your life. One day, you're like, oh, I think I'm finally over it. And the next day, you find it sitting in your gut, heavy and sad. Grief is extremely personal and can make us act in ways unforeseen. The experience is almost impossible to explain because there is no roadmap. So what happens when an entire nation experiences a loss? What forms can that grief take? And as it travels along through a country's space, time, and conscience, where does grief arrive? Or does it never stop traveling, doomed to live on as a phantom? haunting a greater union. Welcome to Strange and Unexplained with me, Daisy Egan. I'm a writer and an actor who has experienced their own share of loss. Last week marked 30 years since my mother died. I was 13 when it happened. I still live with that grief. It's a part of me. It helped define who I am. And my relationship with my mother, despite her absence, continues to change. In 1865, the nation suffered a collective loss when Abraham Lincoln was assassinated. The powers that were at the time decided to give the people an official outlet for their grief with a small tour of part of the country featuring their dead president. It was a strange idea that got a multitude of reactions out of a nation without its leader who, though flawed in many ways, changed things for the better. I'm talking about the Lincoln Ghost Train, which would serve as a public display of grief and all of its strange and unexplained forms. Strangers, before we dive in, I want to invite you to a live show. Strange and Unexplained is going on tour. That's right. If you're in New York, Boston, or D.C., please come out and see Strange and Unexplained live. We're going to be covering the fascinating story of Alcatraz and the three men who basically arts and crafted their way out of there. And unlike your weekly podcast, the live show comes with a visual component. Plus, I'm going to be there IRL. Come give me hugs, high fives, and take pictures. Also, if we sell out, I will be bringing my Tony Award. But we got to sell out. Go to strangeandunexplainedpod.com for show dates, tickets, and information. See you there. On April 14, 1865, while attending a play at the local Ford Theater, President Abraham Lincoln was assassinated by John Wilkes Booth. While the military dispatched troops to pursue Booth, eventually killing him in a barn outside Virginia, or not, if you believe the conspiracy that Booth survived, you might want to go back and listen to last season's episode about John Wilkes Booth, but finish this one first. Anyway, while the military was pursuing Booth, Lincoln's body was embalmed and laid in state in the East Room of the White House. Three days later, on the 18th, the doors of the White House were opened to the public for the first official mourning event for the president. Between 20 and 30,000 people lined up for blocks to view the dead president's body. So many people showed up, in fact, that a second viewing had to be scheduled for two days later. 
Lincoln's funeral was held on April 19th, and an estimated 25 million Americans attended memorial services for the slain president all across the country. And as Lincoln's body was transported from the White House to the Capitol, thousands lined the streets, standing on roofs and climbing into trees to get a better view of the coffin as it passed. So many people braved the bleak, cold rain to pay the president their respects that one reporter estimated the number that day to be 40,000 at a rate of 3,500 per hour. Needless to say, the mourning of Lincoln had swiftly become a national event. The next stop for Lincoln should have been his hometown of Springfield, Illinois, where he would be laid to rest, but Lincoln's Secretary of War, Edward Stanton, decided a better idea would be to cart Lincoln's dead body along the same route his alive body had taken four years earlier to make the trip to his inauguration. Stanton thought a stop in each of the 16 cities in which Lincoln had given speeches on his way to D.C. four years earlier would be the proper send-off and would allow millions of grieving citizens the opportunity to see their beloved president one last time. Call me cynical, but Stanton must have thought this posthumous whistle-stop tour would be politically advantageous somehow. Most politicians don't make decisions purely for the good of the people. He probably thought the fanfare would help keep Lincoln's party and voters' hearts and minds come Election Day. Mary Lincoln was not a fan of this plan at all, which is understandable. I wouldn't want to spend two weeks on a train with my partner's dead body either. Also, as we learned in the Fox Sisters episode from last week, Mrs. Lincoln was a bit of a spiritualist who would eventually host seances in the hopes of communicating with her dear departed husband. So I would imagine it was important to her that his body received the proper treatment in order to let his soul rest? I don't know. But Stanton overruled Mrs. Lincoln because, as everyone knows, a president's secretary of war is more important than his wife. Mrs. Lincoln did win in the fight of where her husband would be buried, though. I don't know what the original plan had been, but she prevailed in having Lincoln buried in Oak Ridge Cemetery, two miles outside of Springfield. Now, one cannot transport a president, dead or alive, in any old train. It's not like they loaded him onto an Amtrak next to men commuting home from work to their wives who they definitely did not cheat on with their secretaries. No, this was the 19th century version of Air Force One. The train car, dubbed the United States, into which Lincoln's black mahogany silver-handled coffin was loaded, had been built for Lincoln's travel around the country during his presidency. It was, as journalist Jack L. High wrote on Medium, quote, one of the most elaborately appointed railroad vehicles ever made. It had upholstered walls, etched glass windows, 16 wheels adaptable to both standard and five-foot gauge tracks to ensure a smooth ride, and rooms for working and relaxation, end quote, with the presidential seal painted on the sides. Ironically, Lincoln never even rode in this custom-built train of his. Elhai's guess was that he may have found it too ostentatious, choosing instead to travel in a plain old, regular-person train. 
The Lincoln Special, as the train was now nicknamed, which is only slightly more creative than the United States, set out from Washington, D.C. with somewhere between 150 and 300 people on board. There are differing accounts. Along for the ride were Lincoln's eldest son, Robert, and the exhumed remains of his son, Willie, who died of typhoid fever three years earlier. Willie was to be reburied next to his father in the plot in Illinois. Not on the train, however, was Mr. Lincoln's widow, Mary Todd Lincoln, who was apparently so distraught by her husband's death that she refused to leave the White House for five weeks. And so, with the details ironed out, Lincoln's funeral train, with his dead body and entourage to boot, set off from Washington, D.C. on April 21, 1865, to traverse half the nation he once led. Aboard the Lincoln Special, the president's personal embalmer, Charles Brown, from the Peanuts comic strip, assured the Chicago Tribune, The body of the president will never know decay. According to the History Channel website, because of advances in the art of embalming during the Civil War, which saw thousands of dead soldiers being transported home in refrigerated train cars for burial, Brown was sure the same process would preserve the appearance of Lincoln for his farewell tour. Lincoln's funeral train traveled no more than 20 miles an hour for safety purposes, though what safety concerns they had, I don't know. Perhaps they were worried distraught mourners would throw themselves in front of the train? Slowly, the train headed north to Maryland, into Pennsylvania, and then on to New York, skipping over New Jersey because one always skips over New Jersey, if at all possible. The first stop on the tour was Baltimore, which had not only been a vehemently anti-Lincoln state, so anti-Lincoln, in fact, that he had had to travel incognito while alive to pass through it unharmed, but was also the hometown of his own assassin, John Wilkes Booth. Despite all this, the mood in Baltimore was one of deep mourning. Horses adorned with black hoods carried the coffin on a rosewood hearse as tens of thousands came to pay their final respects, including approximately 30,000 black people. A reporter for the New York Tribune remarked on the sight of so many white and black people standing side by side, apparently unconscious of any difference in race. I mean, I'm willing to bet everyone was keenly aware of the differences in race, and if the white people weren't, you can bet your sweet bippy the black people were, as being black in America in 1865, especially in a state like Maryland, was a daily exercise in navigating the minefield of racism. Unlike today, dot, dot, dot. Preacher Henry Ward Beecher declared, The martyr is moving in triumphal march, mightier than when alive. Which I think he meant as a compliment, not like how old Mr. Potter says to George Bailey, (laughs) You're worth more dead than alive. But still, it's a weird thing to say, at least by today's standards. Like, admire the man or not, he did accomplish quite a lot, and to say he's mightier in death is kind of a backhanded compliment. Beecher continued, The nation rises up at every stage of his coming. Cities and states are his pallbearers. In Philadelphia, Lincoln's casket was brought to Independence Hall, where four years earlier he had said he would rather be assassinated on this spot than to surrender the principles of the Declaration of Independence. And that, strangers, would be what we call foreshadowing, or irony, 
or terrible coincidence? Moving on. According to blogger Roger J. Norton, quote, long lines of the general public began forming at 5 a.m. Sunday, April 23rd. At its greatest, the double line was three miles long and wound from the Delaware to the Schuylkill. The wait was up to five hours. So many people wanted to view Mr. Lincoln's body that police had difficulty maintaining order in the lines. Some people had their clothing ripped. Others fainted. One broke her arm, end quote. Imagine the energy of a baby-faced Justin Bieber concert, but for a decaying president? As I said, folks, grief is wild. And so, northward, the Lincoln special went. In New York City, some 500,000 people waited to view their president's body. But before they were let in, photographer Jeremiah Gurney Jr. was allowed to take the only picture ever taken of President Lincoln in death. When other photographers heard about Jeremiah, they were like, what in the tarnation? And demanded to be able to also take pictures. Whereas Mrs. Lincoln was like, what in the tarnation? And was furious that anyone had taken a picture of her dead husband. The order was given to destroy the photograph, but Gurney managed to save one plate and apparently gave a copy to Lincoln's biggest stand, Secretary of War Stanton, who buried it deep in his files. The picture is eerie, though I suppose any picture of a dead person is eerie. It looks like it's taken backstage somewhere with two men flanking Lincoln's coffin in which you can just barely make out his famous profile. The men on either side of the coffin, oddly enough, look like George Washington and Abraham Lincoln? In New York City, there was a procession of 16 horses pulling a funeral car on which Lincoln's casket rested, where it went from City Hall up to the Hudson River Railway Depot. Apparently, people charged as much as $100, more than $1,800 in today money, per person to get a view of Lincoln from their own windows as he passed, because capitalism. As the train pulled out of the Hudson River Railway Depot, headed for the state's capital, Albany, about 150 miles north, signs of decay were already starting to show on Lincoln's face. Turns out the state-of-the-art embalming advances weren't quite advanced enough to account for the 23 hours of exposure Lincoln's body had while on display in New York City. The next day, the New York Times reported that Lincoln's appearance, quote, had very materially altered, dark, as was the face before, and unearthly. It was, at 11 o'clock Monday night, nearly five shades darker. The dust had gathered upon the features. The lower jaw somewhat dropped, his lips slightly parted, and the teeth visible. It was not a pleasant sight, end quote. Poet and editor William Cullen Bryant, writing in the New York Evening Post, wrote, quote, It is not the genial, kindly face of Abraham Lincoln. It is but a ghastly shadow, end quote. Adding that anyone seeing, quote, our martyred president for the first time, end quote, would get, quote, but a poor idea of his homely, kind, intelligent countenance, end quote. Both Bryant and the Times journalists thought, given Lincoln's ghastly appearance, New York City would be the last stop that would include an actual viewing. 
But the president's embalmer and the undertaker both assured the public that everything was A-OK and nothing to see here, folks. Or rather, nothing gross and decaying to see here. Just a plain old regular, totally not decomposing before our eyes dead president. To which the New York World asked whether, quote, the embalmer's labor set at naught by the organic forces to which the king of terrors completes the sentence of dust to dust, end quote. Okay, New York world, settle down. And so embalmer Charles Brown slapped some more foundation on Lincoln and closed his mouth. Maybe he glued the lips shut and the funeral train chugged right along. And I'm starting to understand why Mrs. Lincoln was so opposed to this whole thing. Lord knows I'm not the most respectful person to either the living or the dead, but still, I wouldn't really want my husband's corpse to be subjected to all this kind of shit. As the train made its next few stops, reporters began to wonder if people were now just coming out to see the president's body out of sheer morbid curiosity rather than respect. Regardless of their motives, though, cities were now pulling out all the stops and constructing elaborate monuments to hail the visit of their dead leader. According to the History Channel website, cities were erecting more and more, quote, extravagant hearses, catafalques, and memorial arches at each successive stop, as if cities were trying to outdo each other in their expressions of grief, end quote. I had to Google catafalque. Apparently it is, quote, a decorated wooden framework supporting the coffin of a distinguished person during a funeral or while lying in state, end quote. So there you go. For those who couldn't make it to the major cities in which the funeral procession was stopping, many stood along the railroad track to pay their respects as the train went by. According to the History Channel website, quote, For mile upon mile, men took off their hats and bowed their heads as the train passed. Women whispered prayers, choirs sang hymns. Through the dead of night, bonfires alongside the tracks illuminated the way westward, end quote. And according to the Indiana Historical Bureau, quote, smaller towns located between stops erected arches over the tracks, tolled bells, draped buildings in black, and fired salutes. At night, citizens hung lanterns and lit torches. According to historian Robert M. Reed, people aboard the train reported that even in normally deserted rural areas, quote, the night sky was almost continuously lit by the lingering torches and bonfires of countless thousands. End quote. It was like a 19th century sad version of Burning Man, I assume. I've never gone to Burning Man because no thank you. If I want sand in my ass crack and an STI, I'll take a day trip to Coney Island. At least there I can get a hot dog and a ride on the cyclone. Anyway, perhaps the extravagance was a result of the fact that Lincoln's death came at a time in this country when people had been besieged by death for decades. Between all the deadly infectious diseases that found great opportunity to spread in the expanding and super-cramped cities, and the Civil War, nearly every American had lost at least a couple loved ones. Lincoln's death may have been the final crack that broke the nation's dam of grief. 
Once the train reached Indiana, the History Channel website tells us, quote, even at 3 a.m., 12,000 people gathered in Richmond, Indiana, as the funeral train passed under a 25-foot-high arch erected by its citizens. One woman, dressed as the genius of liberty, wept over a mock coffin, while a committee of ladies boarded the train to present a pair of floral wreaths, end quote. Again, I had to Google the genius of liberty and found out it is either an angel with a torch and a broken chain, not to mention its naughty bits on display, or a shocked-looking face in a funny hat with a Farrah Fawcett hairdo making an expression that says, What did you just say to me? Maybe they go together? Like, maybe the shocked face is looking at the angel's naughty bits? Anyway... Procession in Indiana had to be canceled due to heavy rains, and when the train got to Chicago in Lincoln's home state, it was met by thousands of citizens eager to pay their respects. A massive procession wound its way through the streets of Chicago, and at 6 p.m. at the Cook County Courthouse, the coffin was opened for viewing. And by this time, of course, the inevitable march of decay had been soldiering on. And while Lincoln's appearance in New York was unsettling, Roger J. Norton writes that by Chicago, the discoloration of the president's corpse was full-on distressing. The press, however, remained respectful and mostly dodged the issue of the state of Lincoln's decomposition. Finally, after 1,645 miles and 1 million people having viewed the president himself, along with millions more who watched as the train went through their small towns, the Lincoln funeral train reached Lincoln's hometown of Springfield, Illinois. After a brief touch-up of Lincoln's face with some rouge by undertaker Thomas Lynch, the doors opened for viewing at 10 a.m. on May 3rd. Hundreds of other mourners who were not there for the official viewing gathered at Lincoln's house where his horse, Old Bob, actual name, and I am definitely naming my next pet Old Bob, and his dog Fido had apparently been brought in for the day, though why, I really can't say. And on May 4th, 1865, Lincoln was brought in another long procession on a hearse finished in gold, silver, and crystal to the Oak Ridge Cemetery. After an hour-long eulogy, Lincoln's coffin was placed on a marble slab inside the tomb with his son's small coffin beside him. The gate to the tomb was locked, and Lincoln was finally put to rest three weeks after he'd died. In his book, Lincoln's Body, A Cultural History, historian and author Richard Whiteman Fox wrote, quote, By and large, the funeral train experience and Lincoln's posthumous image knitted northern white Democrats and Republicans together and even offered northern African Americans some protected access to public life at a time of great danger for them, end quote. In other words, it was a pretty important moment in our nation's history and served, however briefly, to bring us together, no matter how weird or how long a funeral it unraveled into. Lincoln may have finally been at rest, but the legend of his funeral train was just beginning to stir. Strangers, new and old, you know this. Naturally, years after a dead body parades along a railway route, people will start telling ghost stories about the path it took. 
In September of 1879, the Wichita Herald ran an article entitled, quote, It was a phantom train, the story told by an old switchman on the Hudson River Railroad, end quote, in which said old switchman began defensively, I, I have seen the phantom train. I, I have seen the phantom train more than once. And he relayed his fantastical story of seeing a ghostly apparition of the Lincoln Special one year after it passed through his post. It was the night of April 24, 1866, as far as I can remember, that I first saw it. It was a phantom train. I was at my switch station and had a good while to wait before the next regular train was due. I was about to retire into my little house when I heard a solemn rumbling sound that gave me warning of the approach of a train. We expected a freight train that night, which was to leave half a dozen cars on the sidetrack, and the noise I heard seemed to me to come from that train. While I arranged the first switch, the rumbling in the distance became louder and louder, and I knew that the train was not far away. I had posted myself at the upper end of the siding in order to make no more delays than was absolutely necessary. Just as I had completed my arrangements, I heard a sullen roar, made up of a thousand different noises blended together. Looking down the road, I saw a headlight whose power and intensity I had never seen equaled in my experience of thirty years. There was a chill about the air that I couldn't understand. I saw, rushing along the main track with reckless speed, a locomotive draped from one end to the other in crepe and carrying well, at least a dozen little flags, also shrouded in crepe along her side rails. I could read her name as she passed me. It was the Constitution. And I could see three men as plainly as I see you. One had his hand on the lever and was peering out into the night as if in search of something on the track. Another was shoveling coal into the furnace and making a deal of noise about it, and a third, dressed in black, with crepe dangling from his arm and encircling his stiff high hat, sat upon a stool, doing nothing. You ask me how I saw so much in so short a time. I can't explain it. All I know is that I saw what I'm telling you. There was something ghastly in the faces of the men, but that might have been caused by the terrific rate at which they were speeding along. As soon as the Constitution had passed, I ran to the lower level of the siding to fix the switch, which I feared somebody had been tampering with. It was just as I had left it, while I was puzzling my head over the mysterious engine. A second headlight threw its reflection upon me, and I saw another black-draped locomotive. It was not going as fast as the first, but making what we used to call express time, say 35 or 40 miles an hour. I could scarcely see any of the iron and steelwork of the engine, so thoroughly was it covered with crepe, ribbons, and black cloth. The handrail 
was hidden from sight by masses of crepe, as was also the steam chest, and in front of the boiler was a heavy fold of black cloth. Even the smokestack had streamers of fleecy crepe and ten little national flags that ornamented the handrail were shrouded in the same material. Just below the window of the cab I saw a portrait framed in wood as black as ebony. It was that of the martyred president. I could see faces of the engineer and brakesman and several passengers who were seated near windows whose black curtains were raised. They all looked pale and ghostly, but those who moved at all moved naturally and transacted their business in just about the same way that any other train hands would have done. I expected to see her turn off upon the siding, but she didn't turn off. Instead of that, she kept right along the main track, as though there were no such thing as switches in the world. The cars followed her as easily as though the going was clear, and in a few seconds all that I could see of the train was the lamp of the flagman on the rear car. The reporter then asked the switchman if he ever saw the train again, to which the man replied, Yes, twice, and both times on the anniversary of that night. Nothing was changed, not even the wreath of flowers, which were still fresh. Now, listen, stranger, I tend to be a pretty honest person. I'm not a huge fan of liars. I had a friend once who told me a story about catching someone in a lie, and I proceeded to repeat that story to others for months until the friend told me she'd made the whole thing up. I never trusted her again. Once I catch you in a lie, you're going to be relegated to one of the outer rings of my very sparse social circles. Which is not to say I'm some honorable, upstanding saint of a person. I have lied in my life. I just can't tolerate people who make up giant whoppers or just lie as a general way of getting through life. And I also just can't really understand it as a lifestyle choice. It wouldn't occur to me to make something up just because. So I am relatively gullible. Since I can't imagine lying in such a huge way, it's hard for me to imagine that other people might do it. But I also don't really believe in ghosts. So I'm left holding this story this old man told and going, huh? But then I remember that September is the month before Halloween, and I remember the way the legend of Stull Cemetery began when a seasonal fluff ghost story ran in a student newspaper a week late and got misconstrued as a factual piece of real journalism. And I remember that people like to make up stories. One person's lie is another person's bedtime story. And without people being willing to tell tales of skeletons and ghosts, I suppose we wouldn't have Frankenstein's monster or Dracula or the Scream franchise. So I suppose I should be grateful to those who like to tell a tall tale. And thus, the article was published in no fewer than 10 Kansas papers, which leads me to believe it was a pretty slow news week that week. Around the same time that this article was published, the Albany Evening Times published an article that author Lloyd Lewis included in his book, The Assassination of Lincoln, History and Myth, about alleged sightings of the so-called phantom train. The article claims that men living and working along the tracks all had tales of the ghostly apparition. 
The train would roll through sometime in April around midnight. The air on the tracks would get cold, while the air on either side would be warm and still. As the train passed silently down the track, as if the track were covered in carpeting, one could see, quote, a band of black instruments playing dirges, grinning skeletons sitting all about, end quote. Were the grinning skeletons playing the instruments, or were the instruments playing themselves? No one knows. Also, how can one tell if a skeleton is grinning or not? Regardless, quote, The coffin is seen in the center of the car, while all about it in the air and on the train behind are vast numbers of blue-coated men, some with coffins on their backs, others leaning upon them, end quote. Coffins on their backs? Like, Mini coffins? Baby coffins? What was with all the extra coffins? Additionally, time seemed to stop while the train was passing, and everyone's watch would be five to eight minutes behind once the train had passed. But not all accounts of Lincoln's ghost train are over 150 years old. In 1989, the Poughkeepsie Journal ran an article entitled Ghost Train Vigil a Bust, in which, as you probably guessed, an outing to see a ghost train ended in failure. The ghost watcher, Larry Hughes, whose outing it initially was supposed to be, was joined by a dozen or so looky-loos who'd caught wind of his adventure and hoped to get in on the action, one of whom apparently wore an old Brooklyn Dodgers cap in hopes that the spirit of Ebbett Field might somehow encourage the ghost train? Hughes explained that the reason the train didn't come was because there were too many people waiting for it. Who knew ghosts were so shy? However, he told the reporter, Driving home along the arterial, the north-south, I saw a big bright light on the tracks, and it just went out. It didn't dim. It just went out. According to YouTuber Train of Thought, every April, eyewitnesses along the tracks of Lincoln's route claim to see a phantom train draped in black surrounded by a blue glow. Some people claim to have seen skeletons playing music on board the train, which is hilarious to me. Incidentally and totally unrelated, I have always wanted to make a version of The Real Housewives or The Bachelor where they're all just skeletons. Trademark, trademark, patent pending. YouTuber Train of Thought also claims that locals living along the tracks will find their clocks 20 minutes behind on nights when the train is said to come through. Honestly, all of the contemporary versions of this story are variations of the stories from the two articles in the 1800s. The train passes through silently, skeletons play music that either can or cannot be heard, etc., etc. In 2008, two journalists with the Associated Press accompanied James Willis, founder of something called Ghosts of Ohio, as he tried to catch the ghost train on its ghostly ghost journey. Spoiler alert, they didn't see a ghost train. And just last year in 2021, hosts of the Q Files podcast released an episode recounting their time spent walking the tracks in April, where they were almost 100% positive Lincoln's train traveled. And wouldn't you know, they also didn't see a ghost train. They did see, however, some clouds that they were almost 100% positive looked like a, quote, belch of smoke from a train, end quote, which they declared were a nod from the cosmos, kind of magical looking and very much weird. 
Whether or not Lincoln's funeral train is stuck in perpetuity, making its funeral procession is for others to parse out. But I think the real story is about Lincoln's legacy and lasting impact, whatever you might think that is. When someone dies in their prime, especially in such a violent, intentional, and horrific way, their legend grows and changes. We see that in the outward pouring of praise on Dr. Martin Luther King by people who would have hated him and called him a traitor if they'd been alive in his time. His untimely death turned him into a symbol rather than the very real man he was. Lincoln's assassination turned him into a martyr for a cause that today we find ourselves questioning. Whatever his motivations may have been, Lincoln's actions changed the course of this country and his death united millions in grief. Sure, his final trip back to his birthplace was strange and spawned ghost stories, chaotic behavior, and morbid curiosity, but it also brought the man, rapidly decaying though he was, to the people who mourned him. Whether the train was symbolic or a very real necessity for grief is beside the point. Grief is unexplainable, and at least it's a shared project we all carry. Next time on Strange and Unexplained. What if you knew your life-saving organ transplant was coming with your donor's memories or personality still attached? Some people insist they've woken up with someone else's memories, the bizarre phenomenon that is cellular memory. We have a lot of fascinating and bizarre stories to share with you, but we want to hear your episode suggestions as well. If you have an idea for something you'd like us to cover, whether it's a well-known case or something that happened in your town that the world hasn't heard about yet, go to our website, strangeandunexplainedpod.com, and fill out the contact form. Strange and Unexplained is a production of the Obsessed Network and is produced by Becca Gregorio and Natalie Grillo. This episode was written by me, Daisy Egan, researched by Jess McKillop, and edited by Eve Kerrigan. Our audio mixer and engineer is Jennifer Swatek. Our voice actors for this episode were Luther Creek and Ryan Garcia. Hey, we're going on tour. To check out tour dates and get your tickets, go to our website, strangeandunexplainedpod.com. If you like our show, please help us out by rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. It really does help. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter. We are at SNUpod. And check out the Strange and Unexplained Facebook page to join in the conversation. 